My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement or other person. Alright, let's start the show. Hi everyone, today we're here with Alan Bridell, who is a consultant plastic surgeon working in his own consulting rooms as well as at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. He's also on the board of Operation Smile. Okay, so first question is, um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey from med student to now and how you've sort of come into all the roles that you're in? Okay, well that's a long story. Um, when I was a medical student, I wanted to be a general practitioner. And, uh, but then when I was an intern, and particularly working in country rotations where I was the intern for the GPs, I realised how hard it was to be across everything. I think it's really, really hard to be a general practitioner and to keep up to date with so many different specialties from cardiology to respiratory medicine to surgery. Um, and so at that point as an intern, I decided I really needed to specialise. And then I guess what you end up doing is what suits your personality. And uh, I was very young when I graduated. I was only 22 when I was an intern. And um, I wanted to do positive things. And I found, uh, you know, some of the general medicine things a bit negative, some of those scenarios, uh, particularly back then, which is uh, 1985, so a while ago. Anyway, uh, so I like surgery. It was it appeared to me that if you had appendicitis and you went to your doctor and they removed your appendix and you got better and you came and had your sutures out and then the patient went on their way and their lives had been saved or improved or helped and there wasn't an ongoing chronicity to it. So I like the acute work and mm-hmm. I like doing things and I like using my hands. Yeah. But like most plastic surgeons, I'm probably obsessive-compulsive to a degree, and um, plastic surgery is the only field that allows you to be that obsessive-compulsive that I came across. Most of the other surgical disciplines, you're pressured for time and you're pressured to get through the workload and all of those things. But in plastic surgery, you're actually allowed to do your best job and to get it done and do it once and do it properly. And I guess that appealed to my obsessive compulsive behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's uh, how I ended up in plastic surgery. Uh, there was more to it than that as well. It's a very creative field. Yeah. Um, you uh, come across a problem and often there's no template answer to it. And so you have to devise a problem and uh, devise a solution, sorry. And so it's a very creative field, plastic surgery. Yeah. Was there any other um, specialties that you considered before plastic surgery? Yes, I considered orthopaedic surgery Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just felt plastic surgery had more realm to be creative Mm -hmm. and so that's what tipped me in favour of plastic surgery. Yeah. 
So what are the current roles that you hold um, and what do they sort of involve, just briefly? Well, I'm still at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. I was a medical student there uh, and um, graduated there and intern there and all my undergraduate training there apart from rotations. So I still work there, which is great. And I really enjoy going there. I really enjoy teaching and interacting with the registrars and the medical students and, and like the public uh, work that I do there. Mm-hmm. When I first graduated as a plastic surgeon, um, I had four and a half days a week in public hospitals and half a day in private. And gradually I did less and less public and more and more private. And now I'm the other way around. I'm four and a half days in private and half a day in public, uh, which has probably gone a bit too far that way and looking to change that back a bit more towards the public work. Okay. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about what your typical day or week would involve um, and how much time you split between clinical and non-clinical work and operating and not operating? Mm. So (laughs) this brings up so many different issues (laughs) that you need to consider. Private practice, you're running a small business and I have a number of staff. I haven't counted them lately, but it usually varies somewhere between seven and 12 staff members Mm -hmm. and they've all got to be managed. And the problem is you end up doing that when you've finished all your clinical work. Um, So the clinical work is what we love and why we do it. And that takes up most of a day. So most days um, I try to get up before six and try and get some half an hour of exercising and then I'm trying to be on the wards to do ward trials somewhere between 7 and 7.30 depending on how many hospitals I have to go to and then by 8 o'clock I'm either in a hospital operating theatre to do surgery or I come to the rooms to see patients and so we in surgery we tend to break out of days up into half days which are called sessions and um, I try and string my sessions together so that if I'm operating in hospital, I try and get it so I'm in the same hospital all day. Mm-hmm. And that's more efficient with not much time movement. And then the next day I'll be in the rooms. In an average week, I'll spend two days or two day equivalents of operating and two days equivalents of being in the rooms consulting and then one day equivalent of operating in the rooms where we do small things like removing moles and things under local anaesthetic Um, and it depends on the the stage of my life as to how many hours I spent doing that Uh, but currently it's somewhere between 10 and 12 hours a day Mm -hmm. um, except for Fridays where I have the Friday afternoon off to do things like talk to you Um, the about earlier when I was younger and busier with young kids, I, on top of that, I would take on call at the public hospitals, and so that was a very heavy workload, and uh, uh, probably not to be encouraged. I see my young colleagues doing the same thing now, and try and counsel them <laughs> about it. But there, if you have work in a public hospital, there is a service commitment, and there is an on call commitment. Furthermore, the on-call work's very interesting. It's in plastic surgery, for example, it's completely different to what you get every day. And yeah. the bulk of my everyday work is skin cancers and moles and problems resulting from skin cancers. Some of the skin cancers can be quite big and require quite large reconstructive surgery. Um, and then there's cosmetic surgery as well. But the trauma surgery that you get is hand trauma and major lower limb trauma and craniofacial trauma. 
and the operations you do for those are really quite different and really quite interesting. The only problem is that you tend to end up doing them in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so apart from you know helping people and saving lives, what do you reckon the most rewarding part about doing plastic surgery specifically is? It's really interesting, plastic surgery, and this, you know, where the rewards are and the most grateful patients. Mm-hmm. Um, it surprises me that my most grateful patients are actually my cosmetic patients. Mm-hmm. There's patients I've had who have saved their lives by diagnosing melanoma and removing it, and they look at you afterwards and say, but what about that scar? You've given me a scar. You think, yeah. yeah, but I've saved your life. And they're like, yeah, I don't care about that. I've got a scar. And I think that's interesting. I try and understand the way they're thinking. The cosmetic patients, however, by and large, 99% of them, um, are just so terribly, terribly grateful that you have helped them with their issues of self-esteem and with their issues of quality of life as they see it. And it's usually self-esteem that we treat when we do cosmetic surgery. Self-esteem is something that's not greatly valued by society at large. It's not valued by the private health insurance companies. It's Medicare's looking at it and deciding to value it less. It's also very confused how the general society and those people see it. And a classic example of that is children with prominent ears, um, bad ears, as some people like to call them, I prefer to call them prominent ears. Uh, Medicare and the health insurance companies say, that's fine, we'll pay for that, that's not a cosmetic procedure. But in actual fact, it is completely 100% cosmetic. And the guy who invented the operation that's most commonly done for that is comes from Hong Kong, and he invented it when he was doing training in England, a guy called Chong Chet, and he did a whole lot of those operations training in England and went back to Hong Kong and never did one again. The reason for that is that in Hong Kong, prominent ears are fashionable. And they're considered, I believe, to be um, remind people of Buddha, and it's a good luck charm. So there's nothing wrong with prominent ears. They're unfashionable. Mm -hmm. It's the classic, classic cosmetic procedure. And the reason we operate on children with prominent ears is to stop them being teased and to treat their self-esteem, their feelings of self-worth. It's the same for (laughs) any other cosmetic procedure, but society doesn't recognise us that. I recognise it, and when I look at, because I see my patient's responses, and when I look at the patient who's terribly, terribly grateful after a cosmetic procedure, and just clearly and honestly thanking you or writing you a beautiful letter, Mm -hmm. uh, and I compare that to the patient whose life I saved with melanoma, who's saying, but you've given me a scar, it says something to me. It says to me that we value self-esteem and quality of life more than we value life itself. And, um, of course, that's a generalisation. Mm. But it surprised me. I went into plastic surgery thinking that cosmetic surgery would be the downside. I went into it thinking that I wouldn't do it. Mm. Um, and I've been very pleasantly surprised that that's been a very rewarding side of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the Med Collab, that's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. So what aspect of your job would you say um, is a downside or what aspect do you struggle the most with? <laughs> Running the business is a bit that none of us really like. Yeah. Paperwork in general, surgeons don't like paperwork in general and um, paperwork not to do with patient care is even worse. And then you have the added problem of you doing it after hours when you're already tired and all you want to do is go home and mm. have a rest or have quality of lifetime or, or, or life balance time and you end up running the business. Mm. Um, so and you know and that's a personal choice you can choose not to do that you can choose to have a completely public practice as some of my colleagues do that they yeah. don't have any private practice at all and that totally minimizes their paperwork um, and uh, it also however affects how they deliver their health care yeah. if you're totally public you have parameters put on you by the healthcare system you're working saying how many patients you can or should deal with and how much time you can spend with them and what resources are available to them. The advantage of being in your own private practice is you define those parameters yourself. You set the standards that you're happy with. And for someone who's obsessive compulsive like me, that's nice. I'm comfortable with the, 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 the standard of care I can give to my patients in private because it's my standards which are probably higher than what can be achieved elsewhere. Yeah, okay. Um, how competitive do you think plastic surgery is at the moment compared to other specialties? As to get into it or yeah, as to get a, into It's always been competitive to get yeah. into. Um, and so many people told me not to bother applying because I'd never get in. And, uh, you know, and I almost believed them at one point. I... But at the end of the day, you have to do what you want to do. You have to do what you love. If you do what you love, it's not work yeah. and, it, and it's fun. And I'm often surprised that people pay me for what I do because I do the work and the payment's a whole separate issue and it's nice and but I don't worry about it too much. Yeah. <clears throat> and so if you want to do it, you should just go for it and not listen to people saying it's too hard because everything's relatively hard to get into. That's true. One of the good things, I think it's, it's, in my opinion, it's less hard than it used to be in that there's a lot of service jobs in the plastic surgery, um, the treatment of patients with severe deformity from limb trauma, from facial trauma, from head and neck cancer. All of those has is increasing in volume as people are having other illnesses treated and life expectancy is getting longer that's increasing the cancer load and uh, the more toys we have and the faster cars and motorbikes and push bikes go yeah. uh, the more trauma we have um, so all of the hospitals that I worked in when I was training all have more trainees now than they did then so we're putting okay. out more people Mm. Um, at the moment, there seems to be plenty of work about. It's a strange area of plastic surgery in that we don't have an area of the body. We cover all areas of the body. Mm. And people tend to like to think in areas of the body. Mm. So plastic surgery has always done stuff that's hard. So when 
about 80 years ago, the urologists were having trouble with hypospadias and getting a good repair that wouldn't leak. And the plastic surgeons came in, Benny Rankin and Wakefield, and they revolutionised the treatment of hypospadias. And for a good 20 years after that, plastic surgeons did all the hypospadias repairs. However, by the time I became a registrar, I think I only saw one, and the urologists had taken it back and they had taken on the techniques that had been learned. So that's an area that is no longer within plastic surgery. It's gone back to the urologist. Hand surgery is another area that wasn't done particularly well when um, the first plastic surgeons in Melbourne were setting up and they took it over and did it very well with their attention to detail and careful techniques and not worrying about time. And um, now that all those techniques are established and, you know, protocolized, if you like, Mm -hmm. uh, orthopedic surgeons are the looking to do more of the hand surgery and outside of Victoria lots of orthopaedic surgeons do hand surgery and some in Victoria uh, and then the facial things the maxillofacial group uh, similarly saying well that's our area we own the maxillofacial and the ENT surgeons are saying we own the nose and the ears and and the ocular ophthalmologists are saying well we're going to call ourselves oculoplastic surgeons and we own the eyelids um, so there's all those pressures that are going on, but you know they're just normal competitive pressures that occur all the time. Yeah. At the end of the day, if you're good at your job, mm-hmm. then you will get work. Um, and good at being good at your job involves uh, not only just being technically good, but being nice to your patients and helping them feel like they're being cared for and looked after. Yeah. Um, so there seems to be a lot of sort of niche areas within plastic surgery. Um, do you reckon people who go into plastics most likely subspecialize, or are there many general plastic surgeons around? There, there, there is a degree of general plastic surgery yeah. around, but everybody needs something that they subspecialize in to yeah. hang their hat on, and uh, often that's something that you'll do in a public hospital and um, that'll be very good for you. When I was, part of my training overseas was in Taiwan mm-hmm. and I worked with a plastic surgeon who was given endoscopic carpal tunnel releases to do and that was the only operation he got to do. Yeah. He'd have all day lists and he'd do 20 of them and I just looked at him and he just looked terribly depressed mm-hmm. and bored. And um, So I've kept quite general myself. Yeah. My special interest is craniofacial surgery, which I did at the Children's Hospital for 10 years and still do at the Royal Melbourne and also through my work with Interplast and Operation Smile. Um, and that then filters through to your other things. So my cosmetic work is more with facelifts and noses and ears and, and eyes. Um, uh, but I, I still do skin cancer and I still do hand surgery. Yeah. Um, and um, I still do breast surgery and liposuction and all those other yeah. general plastic surgery so it's things. quite a variety. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how did you get involved with Operation Smile and Interplast and what sort of work do you do with them? Well, I got, I got involved with Operation Smile first through Richard Lewandowski, who's the founder of Operation Smile Australia. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to come particularly to do craniofacial work because I was a craniofacial surgeon and my interest there. Um, And I knew him through national uh, societies, the Australian New Zealand Society of Craniomaxillofacial Surgery, which he was president of and then I was at some stage as well. And um, so Operation Smile largely deals with cleft lip 
but in Australia, due to Richard, we're the only group in the world where we deal with craniofacial surgery as well, which is complicated surgery and which in other units internationally has a 2% mortality rate, although we, we don't have anything near that. Uh, you can do it much more safer than that as we do. Um, so it's a complicated field and there was a, uh, Richard saw me as somebody who he thought would be able to help share the clinical load with him overseas and it's mm-hmm. been good. We've done a lot of surgery together and on separate missions and, um, and you know you find in life that people gravitate to different things and they're better at different things and Richard really likes starting up missions in a new city and he likes all that initial thing and and I I like handovers I like teaching the locals how to do it and I like um, watching them take over and I like withdrawals so Richard tends to do the initial missions and then we do some missions together and then I tend to do with the withdrawal missions hopefully leaving behind a team that can deal with these problems themselves Um, so we work together well like that and then after I'd been doing that for a while um, I presented some of our safety record which is a very good safety record to the Royal Australian College of Surgeons uh, national meeting and after that I was approached by Interplast who had been asked by the group in Sri Lanka Um, a group of plastic surgeons there had asked if somebody could come over to help teach them how to do craniofacial surgery Um, so that's how I got involved with them so how often would you be travelling overseas at the moment? Uh, at the moment now, I'm on the board of Operation Smile yep. and um, that takes up a lot of time. And um, uh, so at the moment, I'm not doing as many missions as I'd like to. But in, at the, at the, you know, a few years ago, I'd be doing two missions a year mm-hmm. um, and they tend to be one or two weeks away uh, overseas. Um, how would you say your work-life balance is at the moment? Getting better. Getting better. That's good. Um, do you have any particular interests outside of medicine and how do you fit them in? Yes, I have way too many interests outside of medicine and I don't do them well enough. But sailing's been a great hobby for mine. Uh, for most of my life, at yeah. various times I've not done it. I didn't do it when I had young children for about 10 years and then I got back into it. So I uh, love the ocean sailing and um, I have done many 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 races mm-hmm. Melbourne to Hobart's on the west oh, wow. coast and the east coast Sydney to Hobart's um, the races north from Sydney up to Coolangatta and from Coolangatta um, to Great Keppel and then Hamilton Island race weeks and uh, so I love sailing it's yeah. great um, and it's a really good release and one of the good things about it particularly when you do the weekly racing in the bay is mm-hmm. that you go out there and you get beaten about by the weather and you just yeah. forget everything and everything else disappears as you go into you know what you think is survival mode uh, yeah. which you nearly always do survive uh, although recently I dislocated my shoulder heading hours from land in Bass Strait so yeah. sailing in a gale and <laughs> that slowed me down I'm on medical leave from sailing at the moment so I enjoy golf as well and you know I'm a member of a golf club but I'm more of a sponsor than a member in that I pay my fees but don't play (laughs) I probably pay golf every three months I get around which means that I'm a terrible golfer would like to do more Um, and you know I really like following Australian rules football and I go to a game about twice a year Mm -hmm. I'd like to go every week (laughs) but yes so it's interesting when you talk about life-work balance, yeah. how 
How we worry about it we're not the only ones my wife is a lawyer and they talk about work-life balance all the time too and uh, they have lousy work-life balance as well Mm. recently she reported back to me at dinner time that they had been discussing at a conference and uh, that a group of the most successful ones lawyers in her field had decided well there is no work-life balance you're either good at your work or you're good at your life you can't be good at your work and your life the balance is your average you can be average at both Mm -hmm. um, or good at one and lousy at the other which you know may be a bit sad Mm -hmm. to hear that but it might be reality based as well Um, and yeah it's interesting it's interesting I I don't have any simple answers (laughs) for people out here the reality is if you want to really excel at your craft mm-hmm. no matter what it is whether you're a plumber or a plastic surgeon or a lawyer mm-hmm. you're going to have to work hard to excel at the highest level and you probably the rest of your life's going to suffer as a result mm-hmm. of that fair enough if there's any doctors you'd like us to interview or if there's any questions you'd like asked please shoot us a message We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. Um, If there's a medical student or a junior doctor who's kind of looking to get into plastic surgery, um, what do you think are some ways that they can sort of work on making themselves a better candidate? Like whether it's research or volunteering or... Yeah, everything. (laughs) There's... um, So the... Application processes these days are quite standardised and there's templates and um, I'm not on any of the selection committees but uh, one thing to do is to approach somebody who is on one of the selection committees and ask them what those templates are Uh and people tend to know what they are and and they involve all of those things. They involve research and volunteering and um, uh, etc. And it's really hard to choose candidates. We... In all the surgical specialties, we get together at our meetings and we say, how are we going to do a better job of choosing candidates? Because on the one hand, it's really good to have these objective measures that take away any biases. On the other hand, they become formulaic. And as there's a formula, they're not necessarily selecting the best people. It can be formulaic, if you like. So it's a... Everybody admits that the process of selection is not clear Mm. and it's not necessarily um, the best system that we could have, but everyone's working all the time to try and make it better. But the reality is is to do the things that one would expect if you had a passion for it um, and to display that passion. So try and work with plastic surgeons to learn more about it if Mm -hmm. you're doing an elective do it in plastic surgery as a medical student you still have electives yes yeah good um so do your electives it might be overseas if you're doing elective overseas do it in plastic surgery um as a um intern you usually don't get much exposure to plastic surgery except for perhaps covering at night or holiday leave but apply to do plastic surgery jobs wherever you can as a resident um and read up about it and attend journal clubs and we invite all of our interns and registrars to our journal clubs that we run at the Royal Melbourne Hospital Um, and 
yeah, just be as involved as you can and talk mm. to people who've got into the program recently and ask them how they did it and what they did. Uh, but basically, in the end, just being passionate about it will do it. And if you're not passionate about it, then, you know, you, it's probably going to have the end result, you know, it'll yeah. define, define the, the, the end. And so I say if you're passionate, go for it and don't let anything stand in your way. Yeah. And if you're not passionate about it, find something you are passionate about and go for that. Yeah. Um, do you reckon the, that the work that you do overseas with Operation Smile and Interplast has changed the way that you approach your own clinical work here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Yes, it does. Um, it, you do things with less resources yeah. overseas and you do because they're just not there and if you're going to go and work in developing countries you have to understand that the standards are going to be different yeah. and they understand the standards are going to be different too and we have all sorts of interesting scenarios like a lot of the countries we go to they have two patients in the one operating theater mm-hmm. one night for each patient you know yeah. which is totally unacceptable to us because of the risk of blood droplets flying yeah. across and cross contamination and, and every thousand and one other things so they never make us do that when they go there they know that we wouldn't like that Um, but that's what they have to do to treat the population they have with the resources that they have and so um, you have to be mindful of that and you have to work within their system to a degree whilst minimizing the standards that you're going to sacrifice from your point of view Mm -hmm. and you end up doing instruments uh, operations with instruments that you wouldn't do them in Australia with Um, for example we uh, worked with a neurosurgeon in Ho Chi Minh City and he was really good with a jiggly saw I don't know if you know what that is but it's like a hand saw um, to do craniotomies with and you know in Australia I'd only ever seen them done with really expensive harbors and drills and things which We took over there and then they broke and then, you know, we were always trying to get them fixed and in the end he said, why don't we just do it the way I always do it? So we're doing all these surgeries without the expensive fast tools. And I remember I took one of my nurses that works with me in a private hospital and I'm always very demanding in the private hospital in Australia when I'm doing a rhinoplasty that I have exactly the right instruments and five different slightly different types of scissors and if I'm not there I'm saying why aren't there scissors here and how do you expect me to work without it and then there we are we're doing a rhinoplasty with just one pair of very chunky scissors and I'm doing this operation and I think I did it very well and um, uh, but I said to this I said you cannot tell anybody in Australia that I can do this operation with this one pair of scissors (laughs) because they'll never give me the five I I love um, when I'm at home. So it teaches you lots of things. It takes you out of your comfort zone. Um, and, and yeah, it's good from that point of view. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, could you just talk a little bit about the different surgeries, like, like specific surgeries that you do, like ranging from however quick to have a long, how many hours that they might be? In, in overseas with oh, operations yeah. well? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, here. Oh, yeah, yeah, enormous variety of surgery. So the bread and butter of plastic surgery is cutting moles out. And before I decided to embark on that thing, I sat down and worked it out. One of my relatives was a radiologist, and their bread and butter is chest X-rays, and they were trying to encourage me to radiology. And I'm like, I I just can't sit in a darkened room and look at chest X-rays for eight hours straight. I just can't do it. 
I know that I can't do that. So I had to ask myself the question, can I take moles out for eight hours straight? And the answer is yes, I can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it sounds simple, but it's actually quite complex taking moles out and you've got to get them into the lines of minimal skin tension. And, you know, we end up with beautiful young girls and models who need moles off or skin cancers off. And so you have to train yourself to do each one the very best that you can. And so each one can become a challenge. So it suits to me. So that's the simple things. And, you know, they take five to ten minutes to do. Yeah. Um, the the biggest operation I've done was a cross leg transplant when I was taking the emergency call at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and a patient had was servicing an industrial paper cutter which had a laser that triggered the guillotine and to service it first of all you turn it off mm. and then you jumped in through the guillotine and he thought he'd turned it off but he hadn't and he went to jump in and it chopped both his legs off. And there was about a foot of damage at either, sorry, 30 centimetres of damage on either the leg, one through the knee and one below the knee on the other side. So neither were replantable because there was too much crush injury. However, we could take his long amputated leg, which was his right foot and calf, and we could put that on his long thigh, which was his left. Mm-hmm. So we made one leg for him out of, out of his two bits. Um, and that took 12 hours and we had to work with the orthopaedic surgeons as well and the team. And so he ended up with one leg when instead of being a bilateral amputee. Um, and it's fabulous you tease the medical students with him when he comes to clinic because you say, what's wrong with this guy's foot? And they say, well, it's got scars. I say, yeah, yeah, but anything else? And you can see them looking at it and thinking there's something really wrong with this foot. But because no one's ever seen a right foot on a left leg where the big toe's on the wrong side, our brains don't allow us to just say that. And they say, and so then you lead them through it. You say, well, what about the big toe? Yeah, it looks normal. Yeah, is it on the right side? No, it's on the wrong side of the foot. And, you know, eventually they get there and then, anyway. Um, so that's that when I was working at the children's hospital, we did a lot of craniofacial procedures for craniosynostosis, where the, uh, the sutures between the bones of the cranium fuse too early in life and therefore the cranium can't grow. Um, and therefore the brain can't grow, so it's important to release it. So we take children aged somewhere between three months and 12 months old and uh, with the neurosurgeons remove the bones from around of their skull from around their brain and reshape them, put them back on. So we had a lovely list one day where we did that in the morning, took us four hours, we finished at lunchtime, we had an all-day list and just as we were finishing we got the call from the emergency department that a six-year-old child had been pruning the roses with his mother and his mother had cut off his index finger in the mid portion of the finger completely severed it so we then turned around and we replanted that finger and you know it was lovely to see them in both in clinic six months later with perfectly developing the perfectly working finger and a very happy mother um and um, then, you know, in my work with Operation Smile, uh, after I'd been going to Hanoi for, I think, about seven years in a row, there was a situation where it was running two theatres at the same time in a foreign country where I 
wasn't that good at the language. But with doctors I'd trained up over the previous seven years and in one theatre we were doing that same operation of taking the bones off around the brain and um, particularly for this case was for hypertelarism correction where the eye sockets are too far apart and then we cut around the eye sockets and then move them closer together and then reassemble everything and the other theatre we were doing a Lefort 3 facial disjunction where the face hasn't grown so you separate the um, face Mm -hmm. from the rest of the skull and advance it and hold it there with bone grafts two of the most complex procedures described in plastic surgery and there I was in a foreign country supervising them doing both at the same time which all went perfectly well with a seven year leading of training excellent local doctors and um so it's quite a broad range of things mm. that we do. Yeah. Uh, and we throw into that hand surgery as well, um, Jupitron's contracture, hand trauma, trigger finger release, carpal mm. tunnel release, uh, tendon transfers, joint replacements in the hands. Yeah. Um, so, yes, so our operations. Of course, then there's the replants. We talked about the cross-leg replant, but we've also done hand replants. And then the future, which is future for Australia but it's happened overseas is facial transplantation which is you know the next exciting phase for plastic surgery um, which you probably read about in the paper as sporadic cases being done around the world Mm. Um, and yeah so it's very broad it's a very broad for your plastic surgery that's really cool Um, that's pretty much all the questions that I have but before we finish up do you have any advice for interns or medical students or is there anything that you know now that you wish you had known when you were younger (laughs) um enjoy the process it's all a journey enjoy every step of the journey um enjoy learning find your passion and it might take you a while i thought i was going to be a gp i ended up being a plastic surgeon if you tossed me that as a medical student that told me I was going to be a plastic surgeon I would have said you had rocks in your head (laughs) but just be open to what you experience and if you find something you really love then follow that as your passion and um and and enjoy the journey awesome that's great okay well that's the end of this interview thank you for talking to us today Alan it's a pleasure that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening please make sure to complete the survey for this episode We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. Alright guys, see you next week.